I'm Benji, Richard Benjamin. I'm an elder here at ECHO. And as you know, John David's gone, and he'll be coming back uh, next week sometime. Haven't quite determined whether it's exactly when yet. So uh, he'll be leaving the Kansas City area, headed up to Calgary, or up to Canada, uh, to pick up his family, and then they'll be driving back. Uh, his daughter is at a, a horse camp up there. So today, I told him I would, I'd had some things on my heart that I wanted to share. And so I've done this a little different than I have ever done a lesson before. I, have, I was talking to Don about it this morning. I've, uh, it's the first time I've actually scripted out a lesson. Usually I go from a, by an outline. But we have time constraints, and I have been known to <laughs> carry things a little longer than the discussion is needed. So I tried this new way. And uh, I think it's going to work well for me. Uh, as, as many of you know, here at ECHO, we're uh, studying the women's roles, some difficult di conversations that are being, uh, being had that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We're having a lot of difficult conversations because it's an emotional issue. Uh, rest assured, I'm not going to discuss that today, so you don't need to worry about that. But because of that and because of the things that ECHO is involved in, I thought today would be a very good day, and it's been on my heart, to talk about love. Now, those of us who've been Christians for very long or actually been to any weddings that has uh, been officiated by uh, Christians, what pops into your mind when I say we're going to study love? 1 Corinthians 13, right. So we're not going to um, be looking at something, for the most part, that we're unfamiliar with. What I want to do is kind of look at it in a different way. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of, a lot of uh, concepts about love. Love is a very difficult to, to talk about. So we're going to talk about, I'm going to spend most of my time in 1 Corinthians 13 dealing with uh, verses 4 through 7. Now Paul was addressing the church in, in Corinth. That verse, that's where the name comes, 1 Corinthians. This is the first letter that we have that Paul wrote the Corinthian brethren about some issues that they were having. All the issues tended to focus around a lack of love. There was a lack of love in how they were treating one another, a lack of love and respect in how they were proceeding with their worship services, a lack of love at what, they, what was called then the love feast. And so Paul addresses that, that aspect. Of, of love. Now those who know me know that I like to cook. Actually, I like to eat. So cooking is something that's very, a big part of our family. 
My two sons went to culinary school. My daughter Peggy married a chef. So food is a big part of, of any type of gathering that we have. But I know a lot of us, we've seen commercials or we've talked to relatives about cooking and we'll say, well, we followed your recipe to a T. It just doesn't taste the same. What am I leaving out? And what is the response? Anybody? Love. The, the secret ingredient is love. Now, I've even heard that the federal government has taken lawsuits against people who put love as an ingredient on their, on their products and having to remove that sort of thing. But love is what makes everything that much better. And as a Christian, love is what makes our lives that much better. It's what should be motivating us. It should be what is directing the way that we look at other people. It should be the main focus. So if uh, Ethan will throw that screen up on uh, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, he, we have the New, Internet, or the New Living Translation here. It's the same translation if you have one of these Bibles, it's in that. Uh, some of the things I'm going to be referring to, the wording might be, not be exactly the same because I study with my old Bible, which is in the uh, New American Standard. So, but the ideas and the concepts are always there. So let's read this together. And I'll read it out of here because it's a lot easier than for me to turn around. If I could speak all the languages of the earth and of angels, but did not love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gifts of prophesy, and if I understood all of God's secret places and p possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I give everything I have to the poor and even sacrifice my body, I would both, but if I didn't have others, I would nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not immutable. It, can <clears throat> it does not rejoice in doing, but rejoices in truth, truth wins. Love never gives up, never loses faith. It always hopeful, endures through every circumstances. Prophesy and seeking in known tongues and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Now out of Knowledge is now out of knowledge is partial. I only had uh, him put that much up because I really wasn't going to, to uh, read any farther than that because I will refer to it later, but it really doesn't um, have anything specifically to do with what, what I'm going to be talking about as far as love is concerned. I forgot I told him to stop at that point. 
Um, so as we can see, love is defined. Very, very well defined. The beauty of this is that love in a nutshell is the gospel. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's because God loved is why Jesus came and died. It wasn't an obligation. It was love. As I said, love is the ingredient that makes life great. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was in, in Matthew 22, his response was, You shall love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This defines us as Christians. We shouldn't be defined by a name of a group that we're part of. We shouldn't be defined by anything other than following Jesus and that God is love. What makes this confusing, especially in the world, is the way that, well, the word itself, love. The English language only has one word, love. I love God, I love pizza. It's the same word. <laughs> but you would hope there would be more to it when you're talking about your love toward God versus your love toward pizza. And that's what we're kind of, we're going to be exploring. The, uh, and then it's further confused when the world looks at romantic love. We've, most of us, how many of us have heard these, these, this scripture read at a wedding? Or even read it at a wedding? A lot of us. This has nothing to do with romantic love. Now, does romantic love fit in what love is? Sure it does. But this isn't telling you how to treat your wife. This is telling you how to treat everybody. And so when we have the concept or we have the confusion of romantic love, when we hear someone say, well, I fell in love with her the first time I saw her. And then a few years later, well, well, we just fell out of love. How does that work? How do we define that love? And so I think that's what 1 Corinthians 13 really does, is decide, uh, define love. Uh, a young couple that I have recently uh, been involved with, they want Jolinda and I to help mentor them. Uh, they're just getting married, uh, actually in the next week or so. And so they came over for dinner with us for the first time. And so before we left, the young man said, okay, I want you to tell us what makes a good marriage. How much time you got? 
you know, I think everybody in here that is married could answer that. I also believe that everybody in here that answers it, very few of those answers would be the same. Uh, we tried to think of something that was, that would help when things get rough. So, Jolinda said, just remember, love is a commitment, and it's very rarely 50-50. And so that gave them some things to think about. We're going to continue the conversation. We're going to continue to mentor this young couple. And so hopefully it will grow into a better understanding or a more complete understanding of love. But looking at 1 Corinthians 13, those of us who have done any exegetical study, we know that the word, the Greek word, and that's the differentiation between Greek and English, there are five different um, loves within words that are translated love in the New Testament, differing between whether it's a, a love for a, a, a person or a a love for your spouse, or, or this love, which is, uh, the Greek is translated agape. Uh, anybody who's been in church, it's a very churchy word, we hear it a lot. Um, and, but it, the word agape is um, the, the Greek that was translated love. Now what Paul does with this is, we see at the very beginning, as Paul is laying this for, forth, Love is a choice. It's not some overpowering force, but it's a choice. It's whether or not we choose to love. If we choose to love, then he defines what that looks like if we are to give the same type of love that Jesus had. Love specific. It's not this nebulous thing, but it's, it's specific to the individual. And Paul's definition is all verbs, which means these are actions. These aren't something that we can absorb or we can meditate over, although those are all good things to have a better understanding. But to truly love a person is an active. It's something that you have to do uh, and also, it's not just a verb, but it's in the present continuous sense. It's been defined as the uh, tense which denotes action and attitudes which have become habitual that are completely being repeated over and over again. So it's not something we should be picking and choosing. It's something that should be part of who we are. It's kind of like the way that athletes train. They train in a way that if they're a boxer or whatever sport it is, if you're playing a competitive sport, you see your opponent do this and you react. This is the kind of love it's not, a, it's not something, it should be in our system. We don't have to think about it. We just do it. We just 
say, this is how we love this person. And the same way in an a- as an athlete, you don't think about, okay, he's moving to his left or he's putting his force on his knuckles so he's going to be charging right at me. This is what I do. You see it happen and your mind goes into automatic. Martial arts is very much a, com- a proponent of this. So, how do we do this? How do we have the t- same type of love that Jesus had? How do we do that? Well, I think Romans 5, 5 gives us a really good um, indication of that. And it says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is how we show the world that we are followers of Jesus. We all sing the song, or some of us who kind of grew up singing songs, uh, they will know that we are Christians by our love. We are told that they should know who we are by our love. And so that's why this is so important for us to understand. But the big question is, how do we genuinely love people that we don't generally, genuinely love? I saw a bumper sticker once that said, I used to be a people person, but the people ruined it. How do we love people who don't love us? How do we love people who don't even like us? Or how do we do that? Do we feel, in, because of our concept of, of what love is, we feel like we need to have this warm, fuzzy feeling when we talk about love. But the way Paul describes it There's no emotion there. It's attitudinal. It's our attitude. We choose to behave with people in a certain way. So, that's why I thought it would be good to be looking at these these verses. If we go back to, um, and I'm going to just read verses 4 through 7, and I'm going to do something a little different here. Instead of using the word love, I'm going to use the word Jesus. Jesus is patient, Jesus is kind, and is not jealous. Jesus does not brag, and Jesus is not arrogant. Jesus does not act unbecomingly. Jesus does not seek his own. Jesus does not provoke. Jesus does not take into account a wrong suffering. Jesus does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never fails. That's incredible. As I said, that's the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus is our example. When he was dying, he was killed by people, murdered, basically. What did he say? He said, Father, forgive them, 
do we exhibit that? In 1 John 4 and 8, we're told the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And in uh, 16, later on that chapter, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in the love of God, God abides in him. And as I said, the, the only thing I can, the only way I think that we can attain that is if we have the Spirit helping us to do this. So how those of us who want to be followers of Jesus, how do we do this? So let's kind of revisit 1 Corinthians 13. When verses 1 through 3, he talks about speaking in tongues. He talks about prophecy, knowing all mystery and knowledge, faith, faith that can remove a mountain. How many of us would love to have the type of faith that we could move a mountain? I know I would. I definitely would like to do that. Not that I have any mountains to move, but I would like to have that amount of faith. But he says, but if you don't have love, it doesn't help you at all. Love trumps all of that. If we don't have love, it doesn't matter what we know or how strong we are spiritually, it just doesn't matter. So verse 4, love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag, is not ignorance. So some of this seems fairly simple to understand. Patience. What is patience? Anybody got a definition for patience? Basically, it's waiting. It, it's being able to wait and see. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for the person that we love. Why would we be waiting for the person that we love? They may not be where we are. But that doesn't mean that we're going to say they're not as spiritually strong as I am. Their faith is weaker than I am. They have a bad attitude, so I'm going to write them off. No. Love is patient. As one, when I was talking to a, a man who was a minister to young people, uh, some married, some unmarried, and he would be talking to them and they would be doing things that they knew that were wrong in the eyes of Jesus. But they were doing them anyway. And he's going, the hardest part is to love them through this. That's our hardest part, is love them through this. Kindness is kind of the opposite of, of patience. Patience is waiting. Kindness is putting forth. Uh, kindness is giving it away. And of course, since we're talking the love of Jesus without any expectation of return, 
When somebody spits you, it spits in your face when you're trying to help them. That's hard. The emotions can often take precedent over what we're trying to accomplish. But how are we going to react to that? Or how are we going to act? Our reaction can often, oftentimes get us in trouble. You know, somebody comes slap me upside the face, my reaction is probably not going to be one of a Christian. How should we act? What does that, con- that concept of kindness look like? Does not em- envy. Basically, jealousy. What's jealousy? Jealousy is wanting to have something that somebody else has. That's really easy in this world. In this culture where we have bumper stickers, the person who dies with the most things wins, it's hard not to be focused on these things. And it's also hard when you've been praying for something and praying for something and somebody else gets that blessing, but you don't. People who are struggling to have children, people who are struggling to, have, to make ends meet, people who have children who have uh, physical issues, health issues, it's hard to look at others and not to have that jealousy. But that's what we're called to do. And then on the opposite side of that is boasting. What is boasting? Well, we all know, you know, hey, hey, the Packers won, the Grizz won, you know, those kind of things. But in our life, what does that mean? Boasting, usually, if somebody has, let's say somebody's been wanting a new car, and you get a new car, what's the first thing you do? You call your friends and say, hey, look at my new car. I just got a new car. It's the one that you were looking at. Are you trying to be mean? No. You're just glad that you were able to get it, and you may be a little proud that you were able to accomplish that, but you're not meaning to hurt anybody. But we need to think beyond ourselves. How is this going to impact the person that I'm talking to? And pride, pride is the thing that uh, Satan has on all of us. We can be proud of our accomplishments. We can be proud of our education. We can be proud of our family. We can be proud of whatever. And all those things are good. It's good. Those are blessings from God that you have these things. But it's the attitude of all my kids um, have doctorate's degree, so I'm a better parent than you are. Uh, All my kids turned out okay, so I'm a better parent than you are. Uh, I didn't make that mistake. Why did you? To approach people with an attitude of superiority, an attitude that I know better. We may not understand why people do what they do, but it doesn't give us the right to 
judge them, so to speak, because they're standing on the corner with a sign that says, we'll work for food, and the first thing that pops in our mind is, get a job. Verse 5, love does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account the wrong suffered. These are some of the hardest. Acting unbecomingly, it's kind of the idea of being offensive. To do or say things that are going to uh, offend other people. Now this is a hot topic for, this, for society today. I'm well aware of that. We have things that are called microaggressions which I'm still trying to figure out what they all are. But it's to present something in a way that is condescending, could be bigoted or perceived as being bigoted, anything along those types of things. In the past, my attitude has been, uh, if that offends you, that's your problem. But it's not. It's my problem. If I offend people, that's my problem. Why? How am I offending it? Even if I'm not trying to offend people, if I offend them, I need to stop doing that and figure out a better way or a different way of doing it. Because when you offend people, you shut down dialogue. You put up walls. They'll not listen to you. I may not agree with them, but I try my very best not to offend. And sometimes it's like walking on eggshells. Several of us have already been there. We know what that's like. And it's hard. Because we have to be the ones that are making all the changes. We have to be the ones that are making sure we don't do this. But this is something we chose. We chose to be a follower of Jesus. The, the gospel can be offensive to a lot of people just in and of itself. We don't need to put up any other barriers. We don't want need to offend people that we have to make this right before we can go into things in a lot of ways or a lot of times are more important. So we need to treat all people with respect and dignity. And I'm going to say it, even if we don't feel they deserve it. Or even if they don't treat us the same way. Does not provoke. Concept of it's an anger. Lashing out. In today's society, we, where do we see lashing out constantly? Politics, where do we see it exhibited in our lives? Social media, it's always there. You can be anonymous, you cannot be anonymous. Somebody says something, you're going to go, whoop, unfriend you. That's lashing out. Now, we may have reasons, but what are we trying to do? What are we trying to accomplish? 
We see an article we disagree with and we just fire off, launch on that person or whatever. Is that exhibiting Christ? You may be right. You may be right. But if you don't have love, it doesn't matter. We're already told it doesn't matter if you don't have love. The hardest one at the end of chapter verse 5 is does not take into account a wrong suffered. How many in here have never had somebody treat you bad? Anybody? Anybody? We all know what that feels like. That's not some abstract concept. We've all been there. What hurts the worst? People you trust, people you respect, people you love. How do you react to that? We're supposed to not take that into account. Why? Because Jesus doesn't keep a record of us. How do we do it? A lot of prayer. A lot of, a lot of soul searching. Verse 6, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. Love wants truth. We are to speak truth in love. But righteousness, love wants truth. If ever, has anybody ever told you something about yourself that hurt, but it was true. Has anybody ever been told something about yourself that hurt, but it wasn't true? You're supposed to react the same to either one. Because that's what love does. Love does not take into account wrong suffering. It, there's not a tally up there. It's hard, you know, at one point in my life, there were uh, forces at work and changes in policy and in the way in which we did things and the paradigm which the world saw things that was extremely confusing for someone of my generation didn't make sense and seemed very childish. How do we deal with that? It seemed like every meeting we had, people were pointing at other people saying, but you did this and you did this and you did this. And so you, I got the attitude that I'm going to keep my mouth shut because anything I say can and will be used against me. We all face those kinds of situations. What makes it extremely difficult is when it's in our church. 
So we need to love. We need to love as Jesus loved us. We don't need to be having a tally, taking, uh, holding things together. Uh, That's one of the things they tell you when you go through uh, marriage counseling. You deal with the situation that happened when it happened. If it you don't, then you forget it. Bringing it up later is not a good thing to do. So we need, if somebody says something that offends or hurts or we don't understand. If I say something up here, I expect you to come and say, hey, you are way off base on this. Or hey, have you ever thought of this? Or whatever. And have a discussion. That shows you care. Later, bringing it up as using it as for something as a weapon shows that you don't care. So we need to care, especially when we're dealing with a lot of situations where there are a lot of hard discussions being made. Whether it's one-on-one, a group, over email, texts, season your words with love. Avoid judging motives. Avoid using terms that you know are going to incite a negative attitude. It's just like um, I married, my son married a woman who was African-American. We have had many, many discussions about racism. And I feel like race, the word racist is overused. She feels it's not used enough. To me, I can get very um, upset (laughs) being called a racist, especially with my background. I grew up in the South, you know, during the 60s, during the race riots, and I'm white. But I don't feel that I was a racist. I never behaved in a racist manner. Almost never, if I'm going to be honest. But that was 50 years ago. So be careful when we use labels. In, in when we're dealing with the church, it can be terms like liberal, conservative, some that terms that many of you may not know because it's hardly used anymore is anti. <laughs> anti. Why? What good does that do to the conversation? Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is optimistic. Love is there in spite of the way you behave, in spite of the way you treat the person who loves you, in spite. 
despite how many times you've made that same mistake over and over. Love is there. One person defined the, 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 uh, the phrase bears all things that it knows everything you ever did wrong but buries them and hides them from other people. The most common is that they don't take in account of injury or insult or disappointment. Those of us who have kids, how many of us have ever had a kid that only made the same mistake once? <laughs> so we know. We know what that feels like. And then, verses 8 to the end of the chapter, love never fails. Prophecies will go away, knowledge will go away, tongues will go away. There'll come a time when we see face to face. We're complete. We are in the presence of God. At that time, in verse 13, but now faith, love, faith, hope, love abides these three, but the get, abides these three, but the greatest of these is love. Faith will become sight. Hope will be realized. Love is eternal. It shouldn't surprise you, or, but, it is, but it does when Christians are not looked at as loving people. If you went up to the average person on the street and you said, do you believe that the church loves you? Or you go to the drug addict, or the homeless, or the orphan, what do you think they're going to answer? Unfortunately, I think it's going to be no. Because in all those situations, we get caught up in how to fix the problem instead of deal with the people. Many of us could tell you right now how to end homelessness. But is that going to help the people who are homeless? We, as a church, spend more time, I hate to use the word, but judging people, condemning them, telling them what they're doing wrong, than how much we love them. So it gets back to the question that I started out with. How do we genuinely love the people who we don't generally, genuinely love? 
boils down to two things, I think. One of them is we have to see these people as Jesus sees them. Created in the image of his Father, worth dying for. And the other is we need to compare ourselves. And I know as Christians we shouldn't compare ourselves, but it kind of depends on our standing. Our standard should be Christ. We should compare ourselves with Christ. Do we love as Christ loves? Do we have the compassion that Christ has? Now, is it, uh, could you put that verse back on for me? I just need four through seven. I want you to look at that and read silently. And instead of putting Jesus, put your name. Because we are called to do this. I'll go ahead and read it. Benji is patient and kind. Benji is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. He does not demand his own way. He's not irritable. And he keeps no record of being wrong. He does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins. Benji never gives up never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. How did you measure up? Did we actually fill that expectation and that's what I'm calling it it is an expectation we've talked about how we're going to treat one another as we discuss women's roles we're also involved in echo in the park are we going to be there feeling good about ourselves because we're bringing this food to this community are we there loving these people we have organizations like Jane Doe No More. We have CASAs who help children, who are children's representatives in court. Some of us work with an organization called Welcome Back, which is a group for what was called returning citizens. They're returning from jail, from prison, or um, treatment. Some of us work with the uh, Missoula Interface Collaborative, with the Missoula Housing Advocacy work with the Missoula Interfaith Collaborative on uh, Family Promise. We work with CareNet. Some of us are foster care advocates working with kids who are in foster care group homes. Are we just patting ourselves on our back about how much we're able to do for these people? Are we going there knowing these people need our love? Sure, it's nice to give them a meal, provide some physical um, comfort for them. 
Other things can do that. Inanimate. They, they can get an anonymous gift that will give them money. They need people to love them. We need people to love us. Love never fails. Want to end with that thought as I carry into what I think is probably a, when we talk about love, the most natural flow, which is our opportunity to come together and to share what we call communion. For those of you who don't, this is your first time here, we have tables on the sides and in the back. Everyone is welcome to participate. Some of us will be in the back and standing around. If you want somebody to pray with you, we're here. We want to pray with you. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That son died a horrible death, was raised, is with his father now, and he is who we are trying to become. He is who we are trying our best with the fallacies that we have as being human beings to be like him. What better opportunity do we have than coming together to remember his sacrifice, drinking the fruit of the vine, eating the bread, recommitting ourselves to that level of selfless love. We also have the trays out there for our contributions. We're not going to be passing trays today. That's love. Generosity shows love. Are we showing love in that way? Or do we don't see it in that way? But I'd like all to I'd invite all to partake. I'm going to say a prayer, and then we can get up and join together as we remember our Lord and Savior's sacrifice and love. Pray with me, please. Holy Father, I've been so convicted as I've studied through this. I pray that we all become more like you, that we love in all word and deed and that people see it. It's not hidden, but it's out there for all to see. We're so thankful for your son and his example and his sacrifice that we are memorializing at this time. Be with us, be in our hearts and in our minds as we continue this time of worship. And we pray it in your son's name.